0: You're listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Calkins. In this feed drop, we're sharing a recording of an event we did with author Syed Masood for the release of his new book, The Bad Muslim Discount. The book was published in 2021. So if you're doing our reading challenge, it counts for the category Read a Book Published This Year. Enjoy! Enjoy! Ayad Massoud is the author of The Bad Muslim Discount, Hopefully, some of you read the wonderful review of the novel that was in the Seattle Times earlier this week. They called it a remarkable debut and a quintessentially American story. Uh, He's also the author of the young adult novel, More Than Just a Pretty Face. He grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. He is a first-generation immigrant, twice over, and he's been a citizen of three countries and nine cities. And he currently lives in Sacramento, California, where, in addition to writing novels, he's a practicing attorney and parent of two. Children. Our moderator tonight is um, Shaheen and Pierre She's a book reviewer for the Seattle-based publication Shelf Awareness, and she's a retired attorney, the board president of Taskphere. She also serves on the board of Hugo House and is the co-chair of the National Council of Grey Wolf Press. So we're so delighted to have both of you with us tonight. Thank you so much for being here, and I will turn it over to you. Great. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much, Emily, for that wonderful welcome.
1: Hi, Syed. How are you?
2: I'm good. Uh, how is everyone today? Thanks for being here. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for joining in this evening. It's, it's wonderful to be talking about a book that I enjoyed so much. Um, and it's such a pleasure to spend the evening with you tonight. Um, So, The Bad Muslim Discount has been compared to A Man Called Ove by uh, Frederick Buckman. Uh, The book has also been compared very favourably to the movie, The Big Sick. Um, I'm sure many of you have seen that. Um, And and many are calling it The Great American Muslim Novel.
2: I make no such claims. You
1: don't have to. Others are making it on (laughs) your behalf. If you wouldn't mind getting a synopsis of the book for those uh, audience members who haven't read it yet.
2: Sure, absolutely. Uh, The Bad Muslim Discount is a dual protagonist novel. It's a tragic comedy, a comic tragedy, what have you. It tracks two uh, young people from when they're around 10 years old to when they're in their 30s it is a journey of immigration for both of them one uh, comes from Karachi Pakistan and uh, his family moves uh, to the states of their own volition uh, legally the other one comes through extra legal methods fleeing the war in Iraq so very different journeys then their lives sort of collide here in the US in San Francisco uh, and so the book begins in the 90s and ends uh, in uh, November 2016.
1: That's great. So, yeah, two very different narrators with two very different life stories. Anwar, being a Pakistani American lawyer, you know, how would he ever run into Azha, uh, who was formerly known as Safwa? So, her name is Safwa at the beginning of the book and it's Azha at the latter part of the book. Um, he ran into her because, you know, they, they live um, close by. But what is it that draws them to each other? They are so
2: different. The landlord at the um, apartment complex they're living at, who happens to be a practicing Muslim, uh, actually engineers their meeting. There are things happening in Anwar's life where he is feeling a sense of loss and uh, uh, wants to sort of regain his his self-confidence and, and sort of get past, get over someone that he, he is infatuated with in love with. And then in Azar's case, uh, she's always had a yearning for freedom. Her journey is really about freedom and the desire to be free, to um, have ownership over her own life. And uh, meeting Anvar, he becomes a way for her to reclaim a part of herself that has been taken away from her.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. She's looking for freedom and and he embodies, you know, this free-spirited Pakistani-American. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so both left their countries um, after destabilizing wars. You know, We were quite familiar with Azhar's case, for example, because she left um, after America invaded uh, Iraq. But I think um, for readers um, who are not familiar with South Asian history... I Anwar's story, Anwar's reason for coming to the U.S. is probably a little bit more unclear or un, un, unusual because they're not familiar with the Afghanistan war, possibly. So I was just hoping we could talk about that and you could explain to readers why Anwar's family left Pakistan. They were so happy there for the longest time.
2: Well, some of them were happier than others. Um <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, yeah, we are familiar with the Iraq conflict because the news gravitates towards what you would call hot conflicts as opposed to cold conflicts. And the Afghanistan war was very much... A cold conflict where the the Soviets were there with boots on the ground, but the Americans were not actively fighting the Soviets. They were fighting through money and arms that were being shipped to Pakistan, uh, the freedom fighters in Afghanistan. And that was how eventually the Taliban was created. And we all are familiar with the history there. So it was all those the road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of moment in history, really. There are some fascinating books to read about this, um, and some of them have become very famous. I would recommend Stephen Cole's Ghost Wars. is very informative. The Looming Towers, I believe there's even a documentary about that now. Um, at that time, Pakistan also had a, um, let, let's just say, a military government in place. Uh, General Zia was a very devout Muslim, and he wanted to make Pakistan more of a Muslim country. And so... That combined with the Afghanistan war, all the money that was flowing into the country gave him more influence. He had U.S. backing even, even though he wasn't elected because they needed him for Afghanistan, right? So um, he changed the, he and these events changed the fabric of society in in Pakistan in my lifetime. Um, and you noticed it in small things, you know, um, even the way the news was delivered, you know, newscasters, female newscasters started wearing the the scarf over there, the dupatta over their heads, you know, So we started noticing um, this trend. Uh, People were asking themselves this question, is Muslim civilization on a downward trend. Um, A great book to read about this is called The History of the World Through Muslim Eyes. The answer in Pakistan, at least, was, hey, things were going great before, so we should go back to doing what we were doing before, which was the make Islam great again, as Anwar calls it, moment. And so there was a nice parallel between the make Islam great again and 2016 make America great again. So um, I was able to sort of intertwine those histories, which which was really cool.
1: Yeah, no, it made, it made so much sense that um, Anwar, you know, his, his family, why they left. I just think it's fascinating for, uh, you know, readers who don't have that background to, to, to think about it more. And I think your book is a great way to get a little bit more of that history. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, the first time we have a novel that's almost exclusively populated by Muslim characters. That's the beauty of it, that there is this whole spectrum of Muslim characters. You know, there's not that typical one that we often come across. Um, in this book, we see verses from the Quran being used, translated into English, but this is the first time and Quranic verses are being quoted. Obviously, something very controversial, maybe <laughs> maybe controversial, um, but you said you talked to your imam at your local mosque about this, and I wanted to ask you what he said about the book and, and the use of these Quranic verses.
2: Right, well, to be entirely fair and to give credit where credit is due, my wife was worried that when our kids who are, by the way, or were at the time the book was written four and two, would have difficulty getting married because we would be shunned in the community because of the books I was writing. And so, and so that's how the book ended up with uh, my wonderful imam. There's this idea of exegesis is what is called in literary theory, the idea of explaining technically biblical terms in new ways or looking at these verses in, in, in a, from a new lens that hasn't been done as far as the Quran is concerned. I am indebted to, uh, obviously, my background is English literature, so I'm indebted to Jewish authors and and Christian authors who've done this. I feel like it might have been done, but we don't have access to those languages where it has been done. So I don't want to take too much credit. The characters are trying to interpret them or reinterpret them for application to their own life. When I talk about Islam or any religion or anything in the book, I try not to be too explanatory, but rather show that these are people for, uh, who are informed by their background and their background just happens to be that they're Muslim
1: Your Imam, when he read it, he wasn't like oh my god, this is this is terrible Kids oh no, mad. he has
2: a great sense of humor, he actually was very supportive and he believes that the book is important, that um, these kinds of books are important because they're ha- they're bringing this, this conversation into the mainstream and letting people in to communities where they don't have access. One of the things someone said to me you know, we don't usually get access to what's happening inside a mosque and there are several scenes in the book where, which are in Inside a mosque and so people get to come in which is nice.
1: Anwar keeps getting into trouble with everybody not just not just you know his mother or his father he gets into trouble with everybody in terms of religion and they're, they're hilarious some of the stories that, of, of the trouble he gets into but in one scene uh, Anwar happens to be with the imam at the local mosque in San Francisco and he's empathizing with him and he compares him to the uh, greek mythology figure Sisyphus <laughs> Before long, there's these rumors going around all over the mosque and the local community that Anwar uh, said that the imam has <laughs> syphilis. Right. <laughs> so it's just it's just funny. I mean, these things just keep happening to him. These misunderstandings. So why does Anwar keep engaging with the religious community when he's not non-practicing and he's always seems to be um, having to explain himself?
2: Right. Well, for one thing, I think Anwar um, can't be accused of is a lack of ego. Right. And Mm -hmm. so one of the plot points in the book is a case which made him very popular in the community. So even if he doesn't necessarily agree with everything, I think there's a part of him that's drawn to the the approval that he has secured because he has found so little approval in his life. Anwar and his brother don't always get along. His brother is very um, pious and righteous, and Um, they just aren't on the same page. And so when Anwar starts ducking out on Friday prayers, his mom starts sending the brother over to drag Anwar to Friday prayers, and Anwar is just trying to avoid that from happening. So he just shows up himself, and I think the line he uses is, I'll torture myself before I let my brother do it. And so that's the the more practical reason he does it.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a great answer. So may I ask you to just read for a little bit from, from the Bad Muslim Discount?
2: Sure, absolutely. So reading a selection from this book is always a little strange because it's, it's very dialogue heavy and I don't do voices. So I, I always try to find some place that has more prose. But also it also has to be early in the book because I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. So I'm going to read from page five. <laughs> and it's a section that talks about Karachi where Anwar is growing up uh, in the 90s. Karachi. The city that spat me out into this world is perpetually under siege by its own climate. The Indian Ocean does not sit placidly at the edge of the massive metropolitan port. It invades. It pours in through the air. It conspires with the dense smog of modern life and the collective breath of 15 million souls to oppress you. Under the gaze of an indifferent sun, you sweat and the world sweats with you. It's probably not as hot as hell, but it is definitely as bad as the sketchier neighborhoods of purgatory, the kinds of places you are just a little reluctant to wander after dark. When I was growing up, Karachi was a place caught between ages, grasping at modernity while still clutching at the fading relics of an inglorious past. It was a city of skyscrapers and small squat shanties. It had modern highways, but was still pockmarked with peddlers wheeling vegetables, over narrow dirt lanes on wooden carts. Imported luxury cars, rumbling, shining, and glimmering in marvelous mechanical glory were not uncommon, though neither was the pitifully obnoxious braying of overlading donkeys hitched to rickety wagons. After a bad day at school, all I wanted was to go home. However, we were stuck in traffic, and the air conditioner in our temperamental old beetle was malfunctioning. Trouble started, as it often does, because my mother decided to speak. When we get home, you're going to have to take a shower. I ignored her and rolled down my window, hoping to alleviate the heat in the car a little. It was a mistake. There was no breeze. And in the vain hope for one, I had let the city in. As usual, Karachi was screaming at its inhabitants, and they were screaming right back. People were leaning on their horns, though the traffic light was red and there was nowhere to go. Hawkers carrying various goods yelled out a litany of prices in hoarse, worn voices. They sold information in newspapers and romance in strings of fresh jasmine. Divine protection, that is to say, cheap pieces of plastic, etched with verses of the Quran, could also be purchased for a modest price.
1: Yeah, you know, I have to say that the descriptions of Karachi really resonated with me. Um, having spent some years there when I was a child. Uh, definitely you picked up on all the all the visuals that one gets growing up
2: there. <laughs> I was very Aware as I was writing it, that I was writing about a, a place that no longer existed because you know it it's it must have changed so much. I haven't been back in a good 20, 25 years, but it was nice to revisit it for a while.
1: Oh, absolutely! I can I can just imagine. Um, yeah, a lot of lot of good memories. I'm sure. How old were you when you
2: left karate? I was around fourteen. Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you're, you know you've you've lived in different cities. Um, you're a lawyer. How did you end up on this path to writing novels?
2: Well, um, I've always tried to write. I've always been drawn to it, even when I was a kid. You know, I never thought I'd actually get published. My father and I were on a uh, road trip. I had just graduated law school and I was looking for a job. Uh, there was a huge economic recession at the time. Couldn't find a job. and So we would go to these faraway places trying to do job interviews. And on the way back from one of those interviews, Uh, There was a news story about uh, some trouble in a Middle Eastern country. I honestly can't remember where it was. Mm -hmm. And he turns to me and he says, you should do something. I'm like, what am I what am I going to do? I'm an attorney. And what what could I possibly do? But. Years later, he passed away in 2010. And in 2016, when sort of things started getting a little crazy with the election cycle, you know, I kept thinking of what he had said, you know, do something. And this just became something I could do. And I wasn't sure if it'd ever get published, but that is the reason for the dedication of the of the book. So that's
1: great. Oh, that's wonderful. And and I hear that your wife had a role in um having getting this book published.
2: To be entirely honest, I mean it's um it's an it's a, an impossible enterprise with two young kids mm-hmm. if your partner is not willing to you know sort of hang in there with you and and doesn't appreciate um, the book but aside from that she has really good literary instincts so when she tells me something is bad or something is good you know i sort of know that okay this is very reassuring that she likes it or if she doesn't like it then the question is why and how i can fix it so
1: yeah, we talked so much about Anwar because he's the one that provides the satire but but Azhar is, is a huge part of the story, and I I was struggling with her for a little bit because she had it so tough, so difficult, and yet she decides to shed some of that. You know, she, and she is herself funny. She has some, you know, she, for example, in one scene she's um, scowling under her car, but no one can see it, and so she's happily scowling away while serving tea. <laughs> She makes her own rules as she goes along a little bit to, to the extent that she can. Um, so what's what keeps her going? What's behind her fire, do you think? That,
2: that, that's a really good word for her is is fire, right? I mean, that has been the consistent word for her since the very beginning because she is born in very unfortunate circumstances, which actually aren't that unfortunate in the very beginning. But because of the role of America in her life and the wars that happened in, in her homeland, it gets worse and worse and worse as, as she goes along. And she just has this desire to assert her own freedom throughout the entire book. There there, there are two sides to a coin. Even though Anwar has an easier life by, by far, uh, he is a more passive character. He runs away from doing things. <laughs> And he gets in trouble because he doesn't want to do things. And he misses out on opportunities because he doesn't want to do things. Whereas she is always trying to do something and make her own fortune. And she gets in trouble for doing things. And her regrets are as a result of things she's done. But so are her accomplishments. So there are two sides to a coin. And it was really interesting writing them. Because in some ways, Anwar's humor makes it easier to get through Azaz's parts. Because you know you're going to get Anwar's. Um, But some of Anwar's silliness is easier to get through. Because you know you're going to get more seriousness from her yeah that's true um, and i also think that she has um she's also like you said i think she doesn't get enough credit for being funny she is funny in a very sort of dark and grim way my, one of my favorite parts from her is talking well she's thinking about a quranic verse and the quranic verse is very famous and it basically says after hardship comes ease and that is a verse that is typically used to assure people that you know you're going to tough times now but after hardship there comes ease and so things will get better. And Azza's sitting there and says, but death is also an ease of a sort, right? It is the is cure for all ills. Maybe the verse is just saying you will suffer and then you will die. And that's how things really become easier is when you're no longer here. So there's there's humor. It's just very dark humor in, in the way she approaches uh, her life and in her point of view. So writing her was emotionally draining. She was a less willing narrator. She doesn't like to share as much mm-hmm. as Ambar does. Um, that's how I ended up writing a, a YA rom com after writing asa because I needed to sort of just write something light and funny afterwards.
1: Decompress, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that happens to be my favorite Quranic verse, by the way. <laughs> okay. Difficulties come ease. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful paragraph.
2: It is a beautiful paragraph.
1: Um, but there is a really funny story that for both of them. In their lives and their in their young lives there's a goat so for Anwar you know a goat is his first pet and for Azhar the goat is something that's really bugging her because it belongs to the neighbor can you talk a little bit about the Eid tradition that
2: Involves goats. So um, one of the major references in the entire book is to the idea of sacrifice and what sacrifice means and what it entails. And everyone familiar with the Bible or the Torah will be familiar with the story of Abraham and how he was asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac or Ishmael, depending on what religion you are. And so what Muslims have this tradition is they commemorate uh, the prophet Abraham's sacrifice by sacrificing um, an animal uh, on the day of Eid the second Eid of the Year. And so the Eid sort of has a recurring recurs several times in the book as well, but it ties into the idea of sacrifice. So the reason the reason the goats are in there is because of of the of the theme of sacrifice. So the story of Sisyphus is he rolls a rock up a mountain for eternity and that's his punishment. And he is never free. But Camus argues no he is free in the time that he's walking back down the mountain when he doesn't have to push the rock. So there is this momentary freedom. And in Azar's story, um, there, is a, there is a goat that is about to be sacrificed for Eid, which essentially commits suicide by jumping off of a building. And um, Azar Aza sort of says, oh, but she was, the goat was free in the moment that it jumped before it realized the terror of what it had done. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little throwback to Camus. It's a very subtle throwback to Camus. It, it sort of links into the Sisyphus thing we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I didn't mean to sort of laugh when you mentioned about the goat, but it it was, it's funny only in in the sense that she's had to tolerate this goat for so long being her neighbor. And then suddenly, you know, yeah, no, that was great. That was, I think the whole novel is filled with such sensational cast of characters, the two main characters, but then they're surrounded by a very lively bunch. The landlord who is the landlord of this apartment complex that they both live in. And we talked about the fact that he's your favorite character. He's also my favorite character. Um, But it also is to do with the title of the book. And I was thinking readers might enjoy hearing about that.
2: Hafiz Bhatti is an interesting character. He gives uh, people discounts. Specifically, he has various kinds of discounts. And the book talks about he also has discounts for non-Muslims. But for Muslims, he has the good Muslim discount and he ends up giving Anwar the good Muslim discount when he really shouldn't have. That's a source of some comedy in the book. But that's where the title comes from. It's from Hafiz Bharti and his uh, his discounts. And, and really what he is, is a, car- a collector of stories. He wants to help them uh, when they're struggling by giving them a break on their rent. Mm-hmm. But also the sort of the, the tax, the price for that is he, he gets involved in their lives and in their stories. So yeah, he's, he's fascinating.
1: He's <laughs> also kind of a hero i mean i think he is that's why i love him so much he's definitely a hero of the story
2: he, he is he really yeah. is he's uh in fact in some ways i would say more than either of the protagonists he is he's more mor- morally clear um, in the sense that he doesn't have to make the cho- the difficult choices they make. And so he's able to come out looking nice and squeaky clean.
1: So. Yeah. Well, despite <laughs> the fact that this uh, good Muslim discount is legally dubious. But I was going to say, the other, there's so many other supporting costs that members that are so good. And the grandmother, so the maternal grandmother, you call her Nani Jan, which means your mother's mother in Urdu. Um, She's clearly somebody dear to Anbar. You know, she's She's his, I think, probably closest and favorite relative. Yes. Um, Did you have someone like that in your life?
2: Not really. Um, I will say that my great-grandmother on my mother's side was a ruthless checkers player. She was... Uh, really good at it she taught me how to play I unlike Anwar who never beat his grandmother I did beat her a couple of times but it was hard earned Um, and you know I'm I'm now teaching my kid how to play and my wife keeps telling me you know you could let him win I'm like yeah but that's not how I was taught because when he does beat me and he has come close and he will one day it'll mean more if he knows I didn't throw it away that's
1: right. That's right. He'll beat you because he he became good enough. And just for those readers who don't know the reference to checkers, so um, Anver's grandmother teaches him everything that she knows about life through playing checkers with him and never letting him win. And even when he um, his family immigrates to America, they continue talking on the phone, and she gives him advice, and she's really eager to find out if he's got any girlfriends. But there's this one scene uh, where Anwar um, gets his brother, his really goody-goody brother, into a lot of trouble by downloading porn onto his brother's laptop. And his brother would never, ever, you know, look at porn. Right. But Anwar does this to get, not just to get him into trouble, he was trying to do something else, but it, it so happened right. that in order to get what he wanted, he needed to do this to his brother. Um, and then when his grandmother finds out what happens, you know, she's, she's obviously on Anwar's side, but the hilarious thing is, you I know, mean, he's expecting to have to talk about what happened and about why he did this. And the only thing she says to him is, you know, what is porn? <laughs> <And> so- <laughs> And that's how you know you end the chapter. Right, but but it's fabulous the relationship between
2: the, between the two. His brother is exemplary. His brother actually is you know an overachiever and does everything he's supposed to do, and Anwar does nothing he's supposed to do. The grandmother I feel like has more of an affinity for for Anvar because I think that the grandmother has spent there's hints that she has made some choices that she didn't like probably not necessarily from her own violation and so she admires and unbarred the freedom that she herself never exercised um and so i think she sees that and she appreciates it so she's closer to him than she is to the professionist
1: the person that i found the most enigmatic was uh, the person who's Anwar's, the love of his life, Zuha. So, yeah, what were your reasons for bringing Zuha into the novel? I mean, you had a lot of other wonderful characters, but Zuha plays a, a specific role. And what were your reasons behind bringing her into the
2: book? Anwar has and authenticity, which is, which is natural, but it comes with a cost, right? So, uh, when you're uncompromising, you end up hurting the people that are close to you sometimes. And he's also pretty self-absorbed. So he has his own spiritual path and he has this woman that he's in love with, a girl at the time. Um, and he expects that they're, because they're so compatible that their journeys will be the same. But she ends up becoming more religious for a while, and she struggles with it, and then she is no longer religious. I wanted to show a a character who was taking a different path. Just because you're close to someone, just because you're their friend, uh, doesn't mean that their views are going to evolve the same way yours do. And so his inability to... Uh, see that to give her the space to grow into her own person at the beginning. And then his, his inability to do that causes him to lose her. So I wanted to show intelligent people of faith who will have different points of view than you, even if you think you are right and they are, they're wrong.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a really good way to put it. And I would say the same thing is true of the parent characters. You know, you have Azaz's father, um, and then you have Unverse parents. Um, and both, all of them are navigating moving into new homes. Some of them had it easier than others uh, while staying true to to old traditions. So which of them was sort of more difficult to write?
2: I mean, uh, they, the parents actually were were not that difficult to write. I had a lot of fun with all of them, even the horrible ones. Um, <laughs> Maybe especially the horrible ones, because the really horrible one is actually the most poetic of them all. And whenever you come across a poetic character, it's kind of cool because you can uh, have more fun as a writer with wordplay and stuff. The one that had the most fun writing was Anvar's mother, who is very religious. Uh, her interactions with his, with her, her, her son are, are really cool. You know, one of the things I always people always ask me, especially in the YA arena, you know, will we ever write like YA fantasy? And I'm like, you know, I probably never will because a lot of my humor depends on references, so one of the scenes in the book is Anvar is wearing a shirt for the band, the Bare Naked Ladies, um, and his mom is freaking out, like, "How can you wear that?" But it's a pretty innocuous reference that she just doesn't get, and that's not the kind of joke you can make in a fantasy world. They're very different people, but again, is a journey of his Anvar's journey is a journey of reconciling with people whose points of view are different than his and learning to respect them, because when you are someone who thinks that you are the smartest in the room, there's a cost to that.
1: And the, the scenes where you know his father takes him for ice cream. I mean there's just some really great ways that you show the parent, the different parent bonds that are, that occur. I mean difficult ones in Azhar's case, but there is still a, you know a parent bond there.
2: Both of their bonds with their parents change significantly due to outside forces. Azar's father goes through a traumatic experience which changes the way he is and so we do get a glimpse of what he was before and what he becomes later on. Anwar's relationship with his father changes once they move to the States. They become closer because his father can't find friends and so he's dragging his son off on these long walks until he does.
1: Yeah, that was really interesting that I thought when when they all moved to America you'd think that the ones who are more religious and, you know, would have a harder time assimilating but it ends up being that the ones who are more religious end up assimilating more easily because they have this local mosque community and they're they're very certain about what they want to do and they meet a lot of people like themselves. It's very surprising. And you know, there's there's one thing that you described that I found so interesting. Um, You said that the West Coast Islam is very different to British Islam or Canadian Islam and I would love to talk more about that.
2: Well, I think what we have to keep in mind is when these communities were formed, right? I mean, that has a huge impact on what the legacy of the community is and what the nature of the community is. And and I think we also have to be careful when we talk about the nature of a community, because uh, the individuals are, are, are as the book demonstrates, very different. Um, uh, and you can't talk about communities uh, without generalizing. So that's what I'm doing. And I apologize. Uh, there's a, I don't think this line made it into the book. I think it came out. Anwar's mom At one point says, "Oh yeah, well, everyone Islam in California is more relaxed because everyone's high all the time. There is a a sort of relaxed, more more um, easygoing approach to the mosques here, which you which you do find in California. I mean, you know, the first time I went to a mosque in California, they were talking about the importance of smiling at people. Whereas if you go to a mosque in Pakistan and in England, where the community was formed." In different circumstances, because there is a, there was a lot more prejudice when it was formed. Um, when you're a minority facing that kind of hostility, I feel like you mm-hmm. close ranks. It is the privilege of living in big cities in California. You have a lot of tolerance, and you have the ability to be more open as a community. And I think that changes the nature of the practice of the religion.
1: That's great. That's actually I didn't think of it that way. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's so different. I mean, I don't know. But I live in Seattle, and um, you know, I think it's so different to England how we practice Islam here. Um, So if it's okay with you then, I'll go ahead and see what our audience is asking. Okay, so the first question is how would you like your text to be used in the elementary classroom as the creator? Thoughts or or suggestions to doing the stories justice?
2: when so just a clarification um elementary classroom would be a little young for yes. this particular book but in classrooms in general if you just type in penguin random house uh, bad muslim in google it'll come up i did about five questions they asked me to do discussion points that i thought would be interesting for the book they asked me to do it for for um book clubs but certainly uh, i think that would be useful in classroom as well
1: yeah Great. So just to clarify, no elementary classrooms. Too.
2: Well, I mean, if the kids are extremely precocious, I suppose, um, you could yeah. use it there.
1: Are the parents okay with it.
2: Yes. The, the, the book deals with some pretty dark themes. So yeah. uh, I would definitely say high school and above, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I concur. Um, so how is writing for a teen audience different than writing for adults?
2: Uh, when you're writing for teenagers, uh, you are obligated, I feel, to be more hospitable to your audience. Um, so there is a um, a passage of text in The Bad Muslim, for example, that I could never write in a teen book. And it is towards the end. Um, and it's like this grand romantic moment. Uh, and it's just a bunch of allusions to a, you know, to biblical and historical things. And you can't do that to a teen audience because there's no space in that paragraph or two to explain it. When you're talking to a teen audience, I feel like you have to be kinder. The vocabulary you use has to be a little less complex. Um, you, can't, you don't have the same freedom with wordplay. Um, and so you just have to be nicer to them. I don't bother being nice to my adult audience if they don't get a reference, I expect them to be able to go up and look it up. Whereas with the teen audience, I will explain it. And it that makes it sound like I don't I don't enjoy writing for teens as much, which is not true. I think the flip side is young adult literature is literature of hope. It is the literature of firsts, there are a lot of new things happening in your life. You're discovering yourself. Whereas adult fiction is often the literature of discontent. And it is the literature of finding yourself in a place and asking, how did I get here and why? And then how do I get out? I, I think there are virtues to writing for young adults. It's it's it, There's a fun to be had, but it's not the same kind of fun as writing for adults is.
1: Great. That's a fabulous answer. Thank you. Okay, so another question is, the family relationships and dynamic in both your books are funny, revealing, and probably relatable for many readers. I was especially drawn to the relationship between Anwar and Nani Jan. As well as Anbar's connection to his parents and brother. Ditto for Daniel's relationship with his parents. Can you talk more about them?
2: Uh, family dynamics are are always interesting because they're the one relationship in your life that you absolutely do not get to choose. Right? You 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 get the hand you're dealt, and then you deal with it. There is a concept in in Islam called risk, which is the idea that what you will what you will use up in life, the food that you eat, the money that you make, is all predetermined for you. Um, your family members also predetermined for you. Family is an easy um, place for an author to establish some interesting relationships because if, if someone like Amir were to meet someone like Anvar, these two brothers were to meet out in the wild with no connection to each other, they would have absolutely no reason to ever meet again, (laughs) you know, or ever talk again. So the family dynamics are always fun because you can use them almost to say, hey, you know, powers beyond my control as an author, put them together, so there they are. And I think that's why family dynamics are so uh, rich as a source of humor, as a source of connection too, because everyone deals with them. You know, um, whether it's found family or actual biological family, there is, a universality to these relationships. And um, because we all struggle with them, you're able to go from the specific to the general really quickly using family relationships.
1: Okay, so which writers inspire you?
2: Frederick Bachman. I, I, I adore his work. Katie Henry, Angie Thomas, Nick Stone on the uh, young adult side are mm-hmm. all fantastic authors. As far as uh, adult is concerned, you know, I really think that one of the best books I have ever read, A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. Mystery is a fantastic writer. Um, all of his books, but especially that one, also his other books, Such a Long Journey. I adore that. He's fantastic. I would recommend you check out his books. I, I look at some of the mystery writers just to get an idea of how to keep the pace up in a novel. When you're when you're an author, I feel like the way you read changes. I'm interested in the story and the plot, but I'm also very interested in the way people are phrasing their sentences and forming their sentences. Raman Alam is a fantastic writer. The way he uses it, like, you, you read his sentences, you're like, oh, I wish I'd written that. That's the feeling I'm looking for when I'm reading a book. Other books that I have really enjoyed, Anthony Mara's A Constellation of Vital Phenomena mm-hmm. is amazing on the science fiction side, which I don't read as much anymore, but uh, Neil Gaiman is, is amazing. I really love his work the ocean at the uh, end of the lane which I think was fantastic the descriptions of food in this book were amazing and when I was writing more than just a pretty face it sort of helped me realize how you could use food to connect with the audience you know and and I learned a lot from that so those are just some of the books that uh, sort of inspired me and helped me out in my writing journey
1: So what are you reading now?
2: I have this uh, weakness for um, Victorian England. So what I really like about Victorian England is the setting. Um, I really enjoy Sherlock Holmes and all those mysteries. Uh, And so any books that are set there, I have a tendency to sort of gravitate towards those mysteries. I'm currently reading The Last Passenger by Charles Finch. It is a part of his series, The Charles Lennox... Uh, mystery series but I've been getting the audiobooks and sort of breezing through them so I'm this is the third one I'm reading now in the series I think there are 14 I will probably read all 14 if you're reading Victorian England I think the audiobooks are really cool because you get the you get the accent Uh, that's always fun but also it allows me to multitask because I've got so many other things to do um that an audiobook is something that i can do while i'm doing other things um yeah i i really enjoy that setting in particular for mysteries i think those are great so
1: excellent well thank you you know before we let readers go i wanted to say that there, you know we've talked about the fact that your book might generate some controversy it's hard to write and then not have people you know comment and, and that's fine but you've written some advice for people who or tips on how to write controversial topics
2: um it's difficult to write about religion especially if you're writing a comedy or a tragic comedy Mm -hmm. and not offend people i don't set out to offend people unintentionally um so if i give offense i probably meant it um and so you know i but i i I try not to hurt people's feelings i try to be sensitive but ultimately it's just is the nature of what I write that people are going to be upset. And just the idea is just approach it with, with honesty and, and from a place of love and you'll be fine.
1: Oh, I like that. I like that. That Was was that the best tip that you provided? The rightful place of honesty and love?
2: You know, I mean, some of the things that people didn't like about Pretty Face were, oh, you're criticizing the DC community. And I'm like, yes, but I'm part of the DC community. Yeah. I have a, a lot of affection for the DC community. Um, And yes, there are some things that we need to fix and pay attention to and do better. But... I'm writing from I'm writing and pointing these out in the hopes that we will get better at it. Uh, you know, I think that's important um, to allow space for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think this book is uh, it's going to generate a lot of great discussions, and I do feel that, um, especially for young adults, you know, who who may have different experiences of Islam growing up in the U.S. It's going to be fascinating to have conversations with them about it. Um, It's been so fun chatting with you. Book, thank you so much.
2: Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, you, Emily, for the opportunity. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks to both of you for this wonderful conversation. Um, We have a great season of author events coming up. This was sort of the kickoff for our spring season. Please follow along at kcls.org or on our social media. Uh, And again, thanks to both of you being with us tonight. Uh, it was really wonderful to hear from both of you.